I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. She's gorge for almost to the end of the year. Oh my god, <laughs> can you believe it? I still feel trapped in 2020. I do too. I feel like I'm gonna be mentally there. Oh, you know what? Actually, I'm trapped in I think like February, March of 2021 when I was listening to that fuck 2020 song by Amanupi and being like, oh my god, I can't believe it's not 2020 anymore. That's where I'm stuck <laughs> specifically. Crazy. Um, <laughs> I feel that though. Um, so we are recording this not in our home, but no. in a very creepy, uh, farmhouse mm-hmm. in, in like Virginia. Yeah. Owned by a crazy woman mm-hmm. who has been harassing me all day. Yes. Um, about your, uh, psychiatric service dog. I'm just trying to live my life. Yeah. And she keeps harassing me. She's demanding <laughs> the money. She's like, give me pet fee. And I'm like, like he's a worker. I sent her all the information and then she was like, you can contact Airbnb if you want. And it's I like, like uh, okay, well. <laughs> yes, because you've already sent her like two different like screenshots of Airbnb's I policies. I sent like their exact link. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, so this fee is like for all guests. And she was like, no, it's just for people with pets. And I was like, all right, well, he's, he's not a pet. He's not a pet. He's working. <laughs> He's a um, dog. So that's been really fun and yeah. great for my extreme anxiety, and yeah. I've been having a great time. But we're here. We're here. We have completed our writing. Yeah. I was a little worried there that we were not going to make it. Yeah, I was um, a little bit stressed <laughs> about that. So, you know, welcome. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, this is the podcast rejects. Should have said that up top. I always forget. <laughs> um, and I'm Spencer, hanging out with Alaska, of course. Yes. And this is part two of Halloween Crimes. Yeah. So before we get started, which I know you're going to go first, mm-hmm. um, I just want to like drop some trigger warnings. Yes. Obviously, there's going to be murder, as we mentioned last week. Right. Um, my Two of my three stories involve the death of a child, mm-hmm. um, accidental and purposeful yeah. um, in various contexts. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are rough. I'll give you a warning before I explain anything that's too harsh, but um, if you cannot deal with anything to do with a child dying... yeah. You know, this isn't the episode for you, I don't think. Yes. So <laughs> just skip this one. Yes. Next week we'll be back to a, another series. Um, so. Or maybe when we post this, we can post it with timestamps yeah. um, of the various stories and um, we'll just exclude, you know, you can just skip the ones that involve children dying. For sure. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Do you have any other trigger warnings? Are we good? Um, I have one for my final story has mentions of sexual assault. Okay. Uh, we it's no no big details, but you know, if you don't feel like you need to skip that, of course, yes. of course, of course. Um. So we'll just dive right in. Yeah. Let's get into it. Um. So I'm gonna start with the um, very mysterious uh, death of Chris Jenkins. Okay. In uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, not a lot of details on this one. It's very, mm-hmm. police won't do their jobs. Um, <laughs> what, what a surprise. Honestly. Um, and what do we expect from Minnesota? It's basically Canada. So. Yeah. I honestly am not convinced Minnesota exists. 
Yeah, you couldn't convince me. <laughs> I don't. I think you could drop me off, like kidnap me, drop me off in Minnesota, and be like, mm, "You're this is Canada. I'm you're like, lying to me." Don't fucking lie, dude. Okay. <laughs> Anyways. Um, on Halloween night in 2002, Chris Jenkins attended a Halloween party. Um, and a few hours after that, he left to go to the Lone Tree Bar and Grill and was eventually kicked out of the bar by security. There are conflicting reasons as to why. Nothing mm-hmm. concrete, so I'm not even going to share them or anything like that. For sure. Um... But basically, he was out at about, I think, 3 or 4 a.m. in 20-degree weather. Jesus. Sorry, did you say, where where is this? I said Jesus. I was like, Minneapolis, sorry. (laughs) My bad. It's okay, I think there was enough pause that you'll be able to cut out your thing. Okay, cool. I was like, we waited to hold it. I don't know that Minnesota is real. I just said that. I just said it wasn't real, so you can't ask me where it is. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and he was in, um, which this does not condone his murder, <laughs> I swear, <laughs> but he was in an American Indian costume, in Ooh. quotes. Every single article used that, uh, in quotes. A white man? A white man. Got it. Yes. Um, obviously nothing to do with this murder. Not <laughs> saying that at all. It's just like on its own. Yeesh. Um, and this was the last time anyone saw him alive. So when Chris didn't return home, uh, friends and family immediately became worried and filed a missing persons report. Um, the police used bloodhounds to track his scent from a pizza place that was across the street from a bar to a parking garage and drops of blood were found in that garage, but his scent was uh, ended there. No other real like clues that were shared with the public. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they're just looking for leads. Four months later, his body was found floating um, in the Mississippi River. I Mississippi River? The Mississippi River goes way up there. Wild. Yeah, it goes way up there. Way up into the imaginary land of, <laughs> of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I knew logically it went farther north, but yeah. I was like, Mississippi. Mississippi? <laughs> How did yeah. you get there? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. My guy's been doing a lot of floating. I guess it has been four months. So. That's true. He could have been farther down. Yeah, which I don't know which way the river flows. <laughs> and I was pretty sure it flows down, right? South, yeah. Yeah, that would make more sense. Because I thought there was it only empties out one... Into the- yeah. River that flows because isn't the Nile the only river that flows north? You're right, you're right. I don't know anything about rivers, correct us <laughs> if we're wrong. It's probably bullshit. <laughs> I don't know. Do you have us on Instagram if you know a lot about rivers, you fucking nerd? I just the only reason I think that is because in New Orleans they have a high missing persons rate, and right. it's because you can drop bo- like a lot of bodies are dropped into the river and right. it goes right out into the ocean, exactly. Yeah, um, so does that go into the Gulf of Mexico? Yeah, okay, yeah, got it. Geography. Anyways. Crazy stuff. <laughs> um, so police immediately rule this death as an accident, as they did for three other men around Jenkins' age that all went missing and were all found in the same manner around the same time. Do we have a cause of death? Um, so the official cause of death is probable drowning. Um, okay. At this point. Um, and... 
there was actually a forensic uh, forensic scientist who talked about this um, uh, specifically about ruling things as drownings and talking about how drowning is kind of like a you have to eliminate everything else kind of thing mm-hmm. to be able to determine that it's a drowning. So basically they couldn't find any other signs of anything else. So they were like, drowning, I guess. He was in a river. Um, Four months. I wonder, like, what state his body would be in. I mean, I guess yeah. it is excessively cold, so it bodies is. can turn, like, waxy. They can be, like, mm-hmm. preserved. But typically, in water, it really shifts how the potty looks. Yes, it does. Uh, I didn't get any super clear details when I was looking around, but they did say his body was, like, pretty far gone, that it was really hard to, you know, find right. signs of anything. That um, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, even in the extreme cold, yeah, water, especially running water, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like ice or anything like that. For sure. Um, and so case closed. Um, <laughs> they were just like, he's accident. He fell off this bridge in the same way that three other guys did. Super strange, they right? They just stop doing that. Have, <laughs> don't fall off bridges. Just walk. And boys be boys. Like, super weird. And obviously his family were like, no, yeah. this is not correct. And, you know, tried to get the police to see it this way. They closed the case. They're not bothering with it. So they hired their own private investigator. Good for them. They did. Yeah, it was really good. Good choice. Um, So just to run through some of the evidence. um, So he was found floating on his back with his arms folded across his chest. Okay. Um, His shoes were still on and his shirt was still tucked into his pants. Um, And people were like, how did he accidentally fall in and like you know you think he would be like trying to swim or something like his clothes should be a little bit more like disheveled or something right as someone trying to fight for their life not just like as if they were laying in a coffin but just in the water Uh uh-huh um he also had human hair clenched in his left hand oh my god and the uh ghp date rape drug was found in his system jesus christ yes and they were like accident Yeah, because I'm like, he wouldn't have hit the water if he had died when he hit the water, which would be the only reason he wouldn't have, like, disrobed or tried to, like, fight. Right. Uh, At least taken his shoes off. Like, that's probably the first thing you do. Yeah. Um, There would have been clear evidence of that because his bones would be, like, shattered in various places. There's no signs of trauma in that sense. Right. So it sounds like he probably hit the water when he was dead. Mm -hmm. And was probably gently placed and not... Not, yeah. Especially if his arms were folded... it kind of indicates that he was already had like rigor mortis set yes. in so that it was more rigid mm-hmm. and not being forced around by the water. Exactly. Exactly. So very, very strange. Yeah. Um, and this, this is all found due to, well, I mean, obviously he was found in a certain position, but the toxicology and all that stuff was actually brought up by the private investigator. Nice. Um, and that's what officially changed his death from accidental to a homicide. And the police um, did a huge press conference apologizing to the family about this, which is like too little too late. Embarrassing for them. Uh, yeah. And this was the only case out of all of these similar cases that were ever changed from accidental to homicide. Wow. Yeah. Even though all of these uh, men were found in pretty much the same manner. I mean, we don't have toxicology for the rest of them because, you know, their families, you know, weren't able to do a private investigator or whatever. Costs a lot of money to get that kind of attention. Exactly. Um, So he was the only one that was able to get this kind of attention. The only police theory that I could find um, was from a 2006 article. So, um, yes, so the death was in 2002. 
He was found in 2003, case pretty much closed um, until 2006. Mm-hmm. Private investigators like, hey, look at this. And that same year, uh, Sergeant Pete Jackson returned to the case uh, specifically because he received a tip. Okay. This tip was basically a rumor. It was something that was like told to this person like through like 10 other people. It was, okay. Like, a really convoluted story. But he was like... At this point, I just decided I need to kind of go and look at this because we had really no idea how else he ended up in the river. So he was like, I don't even care if it's a rumor. I'm following it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it says in the article that they are not releasing their official theories until they have a, like a suspect that they're willing to charge. Um, so this is just very, very general. But... Uh, They did say they have some specific ideas of what happened to him, um, including that the, that Sergeant Jackson talked to an eyewitness slash suspect, (laughs) um, and says that the man is current, was currently incarcerated for a separate crime. And he said the man had knowledge of the crime scene, including its location with like very specific details to the exact spot he was thrown off this bridge. Um, and he said, I'll just leave it at that. Other Ooh. than that, in 2006, there have been no new updates, mm-hmm. no new theories. Um, case has gone cold. The only other thing I saw was something on Reddit. There was a smiley face killer theory that has a huge amount of down votes. People are like, stop bringing up this theory. That one is it's like dumb. discredited anyway yes for all crimes for all crimes exactly uh which is exactly why i got so many downloads right. on reddit they were like stop bringing it up it's so debunked on its own how no obviously mm-hmm. um and that's literally all we have we have wow huge you know leads apparently that had to be super secret in 2006 and then nothing else right I yeah. wonder if the hair has ever brought anything as far as like DNA or where they've gone. They have not mentioned, I could only find one article that even mentioned the human hair in his hand. Everywhere else like didn't mention it at all. Um, and they have not expanded on that whatsoever. Oh. So crazy. <laughs> Lots of holes in this story. Very um, cliffhanger. And I don't know. Yeah. Watch your drinks. Bye. 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 <laughs> Watch your drinks. Bye. <laughs> Watch your drinks, guys. Yeah. Just, Jesus. Oof. Um, my first one is also unsolved. Oh, interesting. So I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Um, do you have any other ones that are unsolved? Yeah, my next one is unsolved. Okay. Yeah. So um, this is the story of Marvin Brandlin. Uh, this story takes place in Fort Dodge, Iowa, which mm-hmm. is also, I don't know if it's real. I've never been there. Uh, what's even in Iowa? Um, I think until I was maybe like... I don't know, six or seven. No, that I don't know, actually. I, I was a child, but probably too late for when it was. we were like learning geography in school, but I don't know what age that is anymore. Um, I thought Iowa and Ohio were the same place. Aren't they? I think so now, especially. <laughs> but I got really shit on in geography class is what I specifically remember. People were like, those are two separate states. And I was like, you can't Whatever. convince me that. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know anything. Okay. You've been there. Would you prove it? <laughs> Geography is dumb. I'm terrible at it. <laughs> um, so it is unsolved. I got most of my information from iowacoldcases.org, which oh. is a really interesting website. 
Um, and this takes place on Saturday evening, October 30th, 1982. Wow. So all of mine are um, either 80s or 70s today. Okay. So older cases. So Marvis Brandlin and his wife Ethel were handing out candy to trick-or-treaters um, when someone arrived wearing a pillowcase with holes cut out for eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the person said, trick-or-treat, give me your money or I'll shoot. Ethel tried to lift the pillowcase, thinking it might be a relative or, like, a friend playing a joke, especially considering their granddaughter, Teresa Trueblood, which is a great fucking name. Great name. Um, had just left the house minutes before, so, you know, they thought it was a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, the person held down the pillowcase, though, and um, so Ethel turned around and went to, like, grab the candy. Yeah. And they followed her inside and pulled out a gun. Um, once they were inside, he, so we know that the killer is a man. Mm. Um, once he was in the house, he ordered the couple, um, Ethel and Marvin, uh, to the basement where they kept a safe, which is a really interesting detail here because Marvin was not a wealthy man. He basically was like a veteran and he owned a carpet service business. Mm, Yeah. Uh, so not your typical like robbery victim. Right. And, um, only a few people knew that they had a safe. Uh, Most were family members. So they got to the kitchen before they got to the basement and Marvin refused to go along with what he thought was a prank. Um, And so he reached for the gun and the guy shot him in the throat, I guess during the tussle. Yeah. Um, He then threw off his pillowcase and then threw it on the ground and escaped from the couple's home. Uh, So never even completed the robbery. Um, Obviously, Marvin was rushed to the hospital and then airlifted to another hospital in Des Moines, where he died on the operating table in the early morning hours of October 31st. Wow. Ethel described the shooter. She said that he was five foot eight with blonde hair and blue eyes. She estimated that he was somewhere between 16 and 20. Hmm. So pretty young. Yeah. Um, Like a teenager, I guess. Um. Ethel, unfortunately, did not live long after Marvin passed. Mm. Um, Her family said that the loneliness following Marvin's death took a toll on her. Um, She died July 20th, 1983. So the July after October, when he died, which is really sad. Mm -hmm. Um, But very common with couples that are together for a long time. Right. Um, Their granddaughter... Teresa has been interviewed obviously numerous times and says that she still has regrets about the night because when she was leaving her parent, her grandparents house, she thought immediately about returning and telling them not to answer the door after seven 30, because that was like a common thing. They're just like, you know, I guess a safety thing. Mm. It's really early to me, but um, she was going to tell them that, but then was like decided not to, and just left obviously not knowing what was about to unfold. Right. Um, so, you know, obviously, as I said before, this case remains unsolved. Um, but what is especially disturbing is that the family is certain that they know who the shooter is. Um, obviously there is the detail about, um, the safe. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ethel didn't seem to know who it was, but the other family members think they do. Right. They believe it was an acquaintance of the family. And there are several people who claim that he bragged to them after the killing um, Ooh. which is crazy. Uh, the yeah. police have confirmed that this person who they haven't announced, obviously, right. Um, is the prime suspect, but they don't have enough evidence to make an arrest right. or charge right. him. Um, they did submit the pillowcase that was left at the scene for DNA testing, you know, several decades later when DNA was finally 
you know, improving, yeah. but yeah. unfortunately there wasn't enough material left behind in the pillowcase for a hit. Mm. So they kind of are stuck there. Um, it's been nearly 40 years since the murder, so it's probably going to stay there. I imagine the person that committed it um, might not live that much longer anyways, considering. Right. But uh, yeah, be careful who you let into your house on Halloween night. Yeah, or Halloween night eve. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it was Both. a Saturday. Maybe they do that. I don't yeah. know. Just stay aware the whole week leading up <laughs> yeah. to Halloween. It's a treacherous time. Yeah, and November 1st. November 1st is not a good day. Mm-mm. Also, if you guys hear a weird noise in the background, it is Jackson snoring. Yeah, um, he's taking a nap. It's he's nap tired. Time. It's been a long day in the car in a new place. Mm-hmm. I've been stressed out, so right. he's been stressed out. Right, yeah, he's in work mode when mama's stressed. I slept almost none at all last night, and he spent the entire night trying to um, keep me from having a panic attack. Yeah. As a sweet baby does. No. Um, but I'm sure he's very tired. He's very so if tired. If you hear that snoring noise, just know that he's just resting. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nice noise. Yeah, it's cute. And no cashy noises, obviously. Cashy's uh, at a hotel. He's staying at a hotel. I'm sure he's very I'm sure he's having a great time. Yeah. I'm Once sure he's he is. there, he's like, whatever. Yeah, he just doesn't like being in his carrier. <laughs> yeah, he's like, let me out. He's like, don't carry me in the air he just like rolls around in that thing yeah. tries to throw himself out of your arms <laughs> he like rolls himself around like a, a chef boyardee can <laughs> <laughs> literally like if you put the carrier on the ground he will flip that thing over and then just roll and i'm like where are you going he's like <laughs> if i just headed? roll it fast enough maybe i can just fall out <laughs> <laughs> all right so this is the last unsolved one of my cases this is the disappearance of cindy song Okay. Um, and there is information for uh, police numbers and, um, you know, specific height, weight, description stuff, because this still is an open case on the Charlie Project. Charlie spelled C-H-A-R-L-E-Y. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, if you have any information, it is still an open case. That is there for you. Um, but so this is uh, Hyun Jung Cindy Song. I will be referring to her as Cindy, her American name. Okay. Um, she was born in South Korea and moved with her family to the U.S. when she was 15. Uh, went to high sc- finished high school there and uh, actually in Virginia is oh. where her family um, moved to. And then she went to Penn State and was studying integrative arts there. Cool. Which I had to look up what that was. I don't know. I was going to ask. I was like, what is integrated arts? And it's like kind of like a build your own major kind of thing. Oh. Um, so it's like for people who are interested in the arts slash sometimes also considered a computer science thing. I don't know. It's there's like it's the same name for two different things. It's kind of like linguistics is like a computer science thing, but also like a just straight up like language thing. Sure. It's that same idea, but it's like the title is just to mean, like, build your own kind of um, major. Right. Sort of a bachelor's of art, generally. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you can kind of pick multiple mediums and, you know, work through it that way. Very cool. Um, yeah, it was super cool. And she was doing the computer science one, I should have specified. So that was, you know, hard work. Yeah. And she was actually just about to graduate. This was the October of her last year. She was a senior. And what year is this? Uh, 2001. Okay. Yeah. So my all of mine are 
early 2000s. Well, I guess the, the next one's 2011, but... Fresh yeah. after 9-11. Yes, yeah. So she ha- attended a Halloween party, um, obviously, on the 31st, and uh, was at the Players Nightclub in the 100 block of West College Avenue mm-hmm. in, like, the college town of Penn State. Um, and she leaves the club at 2 a.m. and goes to a friend's house for two hours in which they hang out more, play some video games. Love that for her. Uh, yeah, it seemed like a really great night. Her friend <laughs> dropped her off at her apartment building, which was the State College Park Apartments, in um, at about approximately 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. And that was the last time anyone had seen her. She was reported missing on November 4th when no one had heard from her. She probably would have been reported missing earlier, but her roommate had been out of town and uh. didn't come back, I think, until the 2nd. And didn't think it was weird that she wasn't there the day of the 2nd. Or, the, you know, she came back, I think, late on the 2nd. Not super weird that she's not there on the 3rd. Like, they don't see each other that often. But then on the 4th, was like, okay. Definitely something's wrong. Right. Wow. Yeah. As for the evidence, there was her backpack and cell phone and the eyelashes that she wore for her costume found in the apartment. So they think she was in the apartment. Everything that she was carrying that night, except for her keys and wallet, were Mm -hmm. missing. Um, There were no signs of struggle or anything misplaced. Um, So the main theory, at least for where she was outside of the apartment, was that she took her keys and wallet with her to a nearby 24-hour store, which she often did, um, to just grab a couple things and then come back. For sure. Um, the weird thing that with that, though, is that investigators checked her phone and credit card records and didn't see anything. There was no activity. And um, there was no suspicious activity at the store either with their security cameras. Um, it didn't seem like off or anything like there wasn't anything happening like in the parking lot or whatever interesting yeah so very very strange very open-ended um they also didn't think that cindy had run away or you know gone off on her own or anything because um she had concert tickets for a few days later and a seat for a new computer that was about to be delivered in a couple of days yeah okay um so it wasn't like you know the behavior, like, it didn't seem like she was, you know, needing to go run away to commit suicide, whatever. Like, it didn't seem like the the type. Volunteers searched the nearby woods, found nothing. She did break up with her boyfriend about a month before, but all of her friends said she was adjusting really normally. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't think that there was anything going on, like, emotionally on that front. Um, she, by all accounts, seemed pretty happy, um from friends, family, everyone around her. So the police are working on this as a um, either kidnapping or murder, not as a, you know, just a missing person. So a eyewitness a few days after Cindy was reported missing witnessed a kidnapping of a woman who, in quotes, looked like Cindy okay. in Philadelphia's Chinatown, which is 200 miles away from Penn State. Whoa. Yes. Um, the suspect, the only suspect that the police have ever had in accordance to her disappearance was Hugo Selensky. Um, and in 2003, he was brought in for questioning. He was a bank robber and serial killer and had, yeah, an accomplice named Michael Kurkowski. And, um, he admitted, uh, sorry, Hugo admitted that the both of them had abducted Cindy but claimed that Kurkowski was the one that killed her and kept her bunny ears as a trophy. Oh. Yeah. He said that 
uh, the both of them had mistook Cindy as a sex worker, and that's why they took her. Okay. And uh, said that she was buried at his home in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania. The police exhumed several bodies from Selinski's yard, and none of them were Cindy, but among the bodies were Kurkowski and his girlfriend. Oh my to gosh. which then Selinski admitted that he killed Kurkowski because he kept the bunny ears as a trophy and he didn't want to get caught or something. What? So that's why he killed him and then buried him at his house with the other bodies. Very strange. I am. Yes. But we because... know serial killers are not the smartest bunch. Exactly. Uh, but because Kurkowski was dead, that put a stop to Cindy's case. They were at a complete dead end. Um, there have been no other suspects since, um, and the police have basically all but, you know, stopped working on this case, you know, other than just keeping it generally open. Minority groups at Penn State have been very vocal since the beginning, um, with their criticism of the police's lack of movement in this case, um, alongside Cindy's family. And I am speculating here and kind of putting in my own opinion at the end here, but it feels like kind of racist that they even went down this path of, like, going to Selinski because, like, how did Cindy travel 200 miles without anybody noticing with, like, no credit card or phone activity or anything only to be kidnapped there. It wasn't like she was kidnapped near her and then was found by like Philadelphia, which would make complete sense if they had the bunny ears the whole time. The whole time was complete, like was apparently in her, you know, whole Halloween outfit other than her eyelashes. Like it seems strange that she would somehow make it either on her own 200 miles with no evidence only to be kidnapped there. And, like, why would she? Like, she had everything going on at home. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So it feels like the police only went down this path because somebody saw an Asian lady and they were like, that must be her. Yeah, that's what I was going to suggest earlier. Yeah, like, in Chinatown. And I was like, "Uh oh. Exactly. (laughs) And I was like, I mean, I don't know if they were going to find any other leads or anything with the the other evidence, I'm sure they were probably just grasping for straws, but it feels like they spent a lot of time focused on this one lead that didn't make any sense from the get-go. Yeah. So, yeah, that's pretty much it with her story. It's also... Is it still, like, you know, remained open and being investigated? Yes, there is, um, as I said earlier, numbers from the Charlie Project for the Ferguson Township Police Department. They have two numbers for them there for anyone who has tips on the case. All right. Um, that was a hard story. This one that I'm about to tell is so much worse. Oh, here we go. This is a story that includes the death of a child accidentally and on purpose. So again, not your thing. You could just skip to the next one. Yes. Um, so this story is the murder of Doreen Herbert. I'm assuming that's how you say her last name. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't know how else you would say it. I um, think some people pronounce it Ebert. Ebert? Okay. Yeah, but I... Could be wrong. I don't know how they pronounce it. Okay. Um, the story takes place in San Jose, California. So <laughs> we're gonna... <laughs> Sorry, I have beef with San Jose. No, it's fine. I don't care. It's fine. Because of this woman's murder? <laughs> <laughs> no. Dear God, no. I feel so bad for that. Um, so I'm gonna build this differently than talking about Halloween night, because I feel like it's important to know a little bit about Doreen and her background. Mm-hmm. So she was born in 1952, and grew up in a loving, tight-knit family. Her second husband, Charles Herbert or Ebert, mm-hmm. um, said 
Oh, she was an angel. When she smiled and laughed, you couldn't help not loving her. She was always giving. That's so sweet. (laughs) I'm already ready to cry. It's really, I just was like, that's such a sweet thing to say. Yeah. Um, She worked as a physical therapist in the area. And um, shortly after she got this job, she began dating William Michael Dennis, uh, though he goes by Mike. And that's going to, that's how I'm going to refer to him throughout the rest of the story. Okay. Um, after only a few months of dating, the couple got married and Doreen gave birth to a baby boy, Paul Dennis. Um, so obviously this is her first husband. Mm -hmm. Um, while Mike loved being a father, apparently, um, having a baby was too much stress for the couple and the couple divorced in 1977. Mm -hmm. Doreen did retain primary custody though. And, um, Mike basically grew bitter over the results of this divorce. Doreen, however, bounced back pretty quickly and married Charles in 1979. So just two years later. And then her and Charles raised Deanna and Paul together as mm. siblings. Um, unfortunately, the family suffered a horrible tragedy in 1980. So just a year later when four year old Paul climbed through a fence surrounding their swimming pool mm. and fell into the water. Um, Doreen was home when this happened, but she didn't realize what had happened until it was too late. Obviously, thinking that it was secure and he wasn't just going to crawl in. Yeah. Um, Paul was put on life support for a week, but died three days after the respirators and feeding tubes were removed. So did not survive. Um, The death was especially difficult for Mike, who blamed Doreen for Paul's death. Um, And he actually filed a wrongful death suit against both Charles and um, Doreen. The case went to trial in March of 1982, but the jury ruled for Charles and Doreen, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, Clearly just like horrific accident. Yeah. Um, And the couple cut off contact with Mike after this. Makes sense. Um, His mental health, which apparently was not, was already not great. He had, you know, some struggles, um, got significantly worse after he lost this case. Mm-hmm. He thought of his son as being murdered and believed that there was intention on Doreen's part in killing him. Jesus. Um, Charles and Doreen, on the other hand, finally had some good news after so much tragedy and announced in 1984 that Doreen was expecting a son following two miscarriages in the previous years. Wow. Um... Which, you know, exciting news. Mm -hmm. Uh, The baby was due in early November just after Halloween. So the Halloween we're talking about. Right. So on Halloween night, 1984, Doreen took four-year-old Deanna out trick-or-treating while Charles handed out candy at home. Once Doreen brought Deanna home, Charles went back out to get more candy and to stop at the liquor store. Um, He later estimated that he was away from the house for about 15 minutes. Wow. So not long. Quick. Um, sometime around 9 p.m., there was a loud, aggressive knock on the front door. When Doreen answered the door, a man in a wolf mask said, I'm going to kill you, and held up an 18-inch machete. Doreen said, get out of my house to the man, and then told her daughter, Deanna, to hide behind the couch, which she did. Mm -hmm. Um, this is about to get really rough, but... Yeah. Um, so when Charles returned home, he found the front door open and inside he found Doreen's body in the entranceway. She was still barely alive, but really only barely. And his unborn son was in the living room. Um, Doreen had been struck repeatedly in the head and body with a large blade. Her left hand, which she probably put up to defend herself, was completely severed. 
her eight month old fetus um, had been removed from her abdomen and was hacked to pieces with the machete. Oh my God. Um, luckily, he found Deanna still alive, hiding in the living room. Good. Um, Deanna testified in a lot of these cases uh, that Doreen screamed for her to hide before the man at the door in the wolf mask began stabbing Doreen with the machete. Once he was done, the man walked around through the house in search of her. Um, and as panicked, as frightened as she was, she's literally a child. Yeah. Uh, she stayed quiet and hidden, moving only to get her blanket for comfort. Um, but eventually that man was, the man was, um, spooked by something and fled the house through the front door. So she survived. Oh my God. When the police arrived, they found Charles in a hysterical state and he was covered in blood. Right. Um, obviously, uh, he was trying to, you know, do anything he could for his wife who was barely alive. Right. Um, by the front door uh, outside, they found a wolf mask with exaggerated teeth, bulging eyes, and a stuck-out tongue. Um, so we do actually have a picture of the murderer wearing this mask because he bought it for a you know, Halloween party a year before. So we'll post that on our Instagram story. Oh. Um, they also discovered a trail of blood that led all the way down the block where it suddenly stopped, indicating they probably got in a car and drove away. Mm-hmm. Um, officers detained Charles for questioning. They, like, arrested him on the spot. Right. Uh, which he actually later sued them for, like, arresting him for his wife's murder in front of, you know, the entire neighborhood. Yeah. Um, without questioning him first or anything. Yeah. Um, I don't know what became of that case. I couldn't find anything of whether or not it went forward. Right. Another team of investigators at the same time spoke to the neighbors. Authorities learned about the couple's troubled history with Mike and about the death of Paul and quickly made their way to Mike's home, who was less than two miles away. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the officers who went to Mike's house said, I remember there was a truck on the driveway And I just, with a flashlight, I looked in and we see blood on the steering wheel and on the key and on the gear shift knob (laughs) covering the truck. Um, The cops knocked on the door and Mike didn't answer, but the lights were on and the water was running. This was like a really weird note um, that they knocked again and then they called the dispatcher who called Mike directly Mm -hmm. to tell him that the police were at his door. And then he answered the door. Interesting. It's oh, not something I was aware could even happen. Yeah. Um, how did they have his number? <laughs> I guess maybe it was the 80s. Maybe they had a phone book or something. Oh, yeah, maybe. Um, Mike answered the door in robe and seemed, you know, totally blasé. Yeah. Whatever. Um, when authorities informed him of his wife's murder, his ex-wife's murder, he seemed, you know, non-bothered and invited them inside to discuss the case. Um investigators noticed a bandage on his right hand, which he claimed was from playing with a knife. Um, Mike told them that he had nothing to hide and agreed to let them do a search of his home. Investigators found blood throughout the house and on articles of clothing, um, more than what could come from a simple knife wound. Um, After seeing all this blood and, you know, what they know about him, they just arrested him on the spot for murder. Of course. Um, while conducting a second search from the home after he was arrested, the police found a receipt from a hardware store uh, for a machete with an 18-inch blade. They never did find the machete, though. Interesting. Um, in his garage, they also found two handmade coffins, one for Charles and a smaller one for Doreen. Um, 
as well as body bags, weights, and a map of the San Francisco Bay. Hmm. Uh, his plan was to dump them in the bay of San Matito Bridge, like up the, under the San Matito Bridge. Yeah. It's um, a pretty big bridge. I don't know what the machete was for, if that was his plan. Right. He had full coffins that he had taken the time to build. <laughs> Honestly. Just keep that in mind for later. Yeah. Um, Mike initially denied murdering his ex-wife, and despite the evidence at hand, it was not strong enough to hold him, and he was released after 48 hours. Oh, my God. Um, he was arrested again on November 5th, so just a couple days later, mm-hmm. um, after a state crime scene matched Mike's blood type to the... Um, one found at the crime scene. Because uh, obviously at this time they didn't have DNA. So the best they could do is blood type analysis. Right. Um, Mark, Mike was in charge with murder with special circumstances. Making him eligible for the death penalty. Wow. Um, detectives were able to trace the wolf mask found at, his ho- at the home uh, to one Mike wore at a Halloween party the previous year. Jesus. Um, so pretty intense evidence. Uh, he went to trial in July of 1988. Uh, and was ul- and ultimately pled guilty to first-degree murder for the death of Doreen and second-degree murder for the death of her unborn fetus, which I think is exceptionally generous considering it was literally removed from her body and hacked to pieces. Yep. Um, in September 1999, so 11 years later, yeah. he was finally sentenced uh, to die in the gas chamber. Um, obviously, it hasn't been executed and continues to sit on death row as California has basically put a moratorium on all executions. Right. Um, they haven't executed anyone since like the 70s or something. Right. He has filed several appeals and petitions over the years, the latest one being in 2017. Some of the points he's brought up is whether or not he knew Doreen was pregnant. Shouldn't be relevant. The definition of murder for a baby who never took an independent breath. Um, Mike's different mental illness diagnoses and ineffective counsel. All of them were denied. Of course. Thank God. Um, None of these seem particularly strong. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a really horrific, you know, thing, but it is relevant to his definition of murder for a baby who never took an independent breath. Most of the time, obviously this was in the 80s, but now if you kill a pregnant woman and, you know, cut out her baby and kill that baby, it is also first degree murder. Right. Uh, whether, knew, whether or not you knew she was pregnant when you showed up. But she was also about to give birth. You know, she was going to give birth in November. Yeah. She was pretty pregnant. Yeah. You would know. Yeah. Um, and more than that, uh, Deanna did tell her dad, Charles, that when she was hiding... And listening to this happen, she did hear a baby cry for a moment before it was cut off. Okay, so it had to have taken its first breath because yeah. that's how you know a baby is breathing is when they cry. Yes, um, which makes sense because it was pretty close to being born. Yeah. So um, it's not unusual that it would be able to have survived outside of the womb on its own. Right. Not that I think that should matter with this kind of murder. Um, right. You know. But it is, like, very specific considering he is arguing that it shouldn't be as big of a deal. Yeah. Um, which it's like, that's not why you got the death penalty. No. But um, fuck you either way. Mike still has friends that believe he just went insane for a brief period of time and should not be in prison. Wait, um, his friends said this? Yes. Who the fuck are you? Who cares? I'm like, shut up. They said that his character was strong and he was pushed over the edge. 
In an interview in 2016, Mike stated to reporters that he is appealing his death sentence because he believes that he should not have been charged. He should have been charged with manslaughter and not first degree murder. He said he was blinded by grief over the drowning death of his four year old son when he killed his ex-wife. He built coffins. He literally built coffins. This was the definition of premeditated. Yeah. He planned this out. Yeah. And then he literally hacked her to death with a machete, which is an exceptionally violent way to kill someone. Yeah. Didn't he like just buy the machete too? Like he didn't have the machete already. He went out and bought it. And then he hid it. Yeah. Uh, How long was it after the Paul, um, Paul Dennis's death? Yeah. So Paul died in 1980 and this murder took place in 1984. So it was four years later. Four years later. So I don't think that's a, a heat of passion period. Yes. That's not a heat of the moment. Right. Period. I'm like you, four years. You hacked an unborn baby yes. to death. Yeah. You deserve nothing. Yeah. That is the most horrific thing I can imagine. I can't imagine being that angry. Yeah. I can't. I'm like, I, you deserve nothing. Yeah. And the people who would continue to defend him, I find that despicable and disgusting. There is no possible way to grieve specifically a child to a point where you need to kill another child. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. Right. Like, at, at, at any delusional level. Yeah. It's yeah. like, you know, I can understand... You know, I don't think it's right, but I understand, you know, grieving a child enough to kill, like, the adult that you may think is responsible. Right. But I can't imagine having so much grief for a child that you then kill another one. Right. That makes no sense at all. I'm like, that is horrific. Yeah. And I'm like, also waiting four years. Yeah. You had plenty of time to go to therapy. Yeah. Um, Doreen's father... Frank um, Hitchens died in 2007, but before that he stated in an interview that Doreen's murder had ruined his life. And he said that if he ever saw Mike Dennis outside of prison, he would kill him. Yeah. Um, Doreen's mother, who by all accounts is still alive, echoed her husband's sentiment. Good. Yeah. They deserve to kill him, I think. I am not a supporter, yeah, of the death penalty. Yeah. I... I'm like, but that's not death penalty if they kill him. I don't right. think the, my personal opinion is I don't think the state should be killing anybody. Yeah. That's what I, I don't support the death penalty. Yeah. But Doreen's mom, she should have at it. Doreen's mom can do whatever she wants. I think she should be able to do it in any fashion. Um, so. Electric chair if she wants. Yeah. Even if it's horrific. I don't right. Care. I'm like, I just can't, I can't even like fathom. I almost broke into tears writing this. Yeah. It made me, like, gag. I, I'm like, this is a monster beyond anything I could possibly imagine. Absolutely. Um, Charles and Deanna are both still alive. And he has said um, that for his and Deanna's peace of mind, they have forgiven Mike. Um, he said, I want him to know we survived and we're making it. He hasn't conquered us. Which, I love Charles. Yeah. God, that poor guy. And that like, daughter. It's just... I can't even Such imagine a hard thing. Yeah, having to hide in a house, like hearing a killer kill two people and then search the house for you, mm-hmm. thinking at any moment he could find you. And then as an eight-year-old, four years later, was able to testify in court. Yeah. Wait, she was four at the time? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I thought she was eight at the time. I mean, not that, you know, I'm not saying that eight-year-olds are... <laughs> 
capable. You know, it's like it's four years old. Yeah. Being able to hide like that. Like you're so, I just, like I said, this case is rough. Oh my God. Um, so, but at least he's in prison where he will stay. Yeah. Um, until he dies mm-hmm. of natural causes because California is not going to execute him. Right. Honestly, they should just remove it from their law. They should. It's very weird that they are like, yeah, we can give people the death penalty, but we but, haven't executed anyone in like 50 years. Yeah, you're, like, you're not going to do that. I'm like, just take it off already. Yeah. So we have two more stories to go. Yep. Two more. Okay, so this is my final story, and it's also kind of a doozy. Oh, God. Um... This is the story of Cynthia Alvarez. Um, I realize now that the way I have said that makes her sound like the victim. She is the perpetrator. Oh, God. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, This is the first time we've had a woman killer. Yes. Yeah. In this whole series. A teenage killer. (laughs) Yes. Um, So Cynthia Alvarez lived with her mother, Gloria... um, Vialta, I believe is pronounced, mm-hmm. and uh, Jose Lara. Uh, oh, sorry, her stepfather, Jose, um, and her older sister at a mobile home park in Compton, California. Um, her father was not in her life because he was deported to Honduras when she was a, a young girl. So okay. she just lived with her mother and stepfather. So before we get into the murder specifically, I'm just going to run through um, some things that Cynthia has said in court documents um, about her life before this. Um, She has testified that her mother had abused her. Her mother was partially blind and had diabetes, so she expected Cynthia to do all of the housework and be in charge of her insulin treatment. Mm. Um, She had testified that her stepfather had sexually abused her. There were court filings in 2007 and 2008 against him that were withdrawn, uh, Cynthia said that she withdrew them because of pressure from her mother to lie and take them back. That's not uncommon. Yeah. So in 2010, Cynthia met her boyfriend, Giovanni, nicknamed Johnny Gallardo, at Compton's uh, Dominguez High School. The both of them were in the school's special education program. Um, they both had learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. And Johnny specifically... Um, was diagnosed with these disabilities at the age of 13, and a later examination determined he had an IQ of 57. So very low. Wow. Cynthia said that the relations relationship started really strong and felt that the two were in love. They were inseparable, essentially, for a while. Uh, but Johnny would soon show a very, very dark side. He began to physically abuse her, drugged her on multiple occasions, and wow. threatened her with knives and guns. Jesus. I don't know how much of that has actually been, you know, proved or cooperated. This is all just within this case's court documents. Mm -hmm. But we do know from friends and family that Cynthia's parents did not like Johnny and he did not like them. They were very much against uh, him being with their daughter. And um, they tried to, on multiple occasions, get uh, her to break up with him. She did not do that. She wouldn't listen to her parents and uh, eventually even told her boyfriend that she was uh, sexually assaulted by her stepfather, in which he said that they should kill him. Okay. Um, and eventually Gloria was telling Cynthia t- uh, too many times to break up with Johnny, so they started talking about killing her too. So these discussions had been going on for months. 
Um, they f- began to actually start planning the murder of her parents in fall of uh, 2011. Okay. So just about a year, I think, after they met. Um, she was 15 years old at the time, and he was 16, by the way. They're both minors. On the afternoon of October 12th, Johnny showed up at Cynthia's home with a murder kit, which included a baseball bat, a mask, and rubbing alcohol. Um, Gloria was home um, preparing dinner. Um, Interesting murder kit. Yes. I don't... Seems like... Maybe you didn't do a whole assignment. Yeah, it seems Murder like... kit seems like a really, you know, strong word for a few things. Yes, and all of the articles that I've read have all had murder kit in quotes. Because <laughs> they're like... Mm. They're like, you fucking dumbass. Yeah. I got my murder kit. It's a bat. A bat, a mask, and rubbing alcohol. What's the rubbing alcohol for? Right, I was like, you think that's going to clean up what? <laughs> rubbing alcohol? I think they thought that. I'm like, it, what do you think rubbing alcohol is? It's not bleach, if that's what you're thinking. are so stupid. They really are. Um, So the two of them were just sitting in the trailer with um, Gloria, like just over there, cooking dinner. And they communicated through hand gestures and notes written in a spiral notebook that detectives found immediately, which I have two pictures of that notebook um, that include, you know, one of them is like a close-up of... Um, what was actually written in the other one was just like where it was found. Mm-hmm. The specific quotes that they have are, I'm too scared, I cannot do it, in what looks like Cynthia's handwriting. Another part said, what if she's going to bed? Can you kill her? And finally, one that just said, you do it. Mm. Cynthia then claimed that she had gone outside and Johnny was the one to attack her mother. Um, she heard her mother shout her name and Johnny called for her. She went back inside and then found her dead on the floor. Johnny had strangled her um, to death. So, yeah. Didn't even use his murder kit. Didn't even use his murder kit. Why did you bring it? And I'm like, you heard her scream for your name and then immediately set back inside and she was already dead from strangulation. I'm like, strangulation takes a long time. It takes a long time. time. I'm like, girl, you were out there for a long time. Or you were in there and you were just lying. Yeah. They dragged her body into the bedroom and um, Johnny bound her with tape. Um, They just sat in the trailer and watched TV to wait for the stepfather to come home. Yeah. Uh, When he did arrive home, Johnny immediately um, struck him twice in the face with the baseball bat as soon as he opened the door. The stepfather immediately began fighting back and Johnny asked for help and Cynthia picked up the bat and struck her stepfather in, um, it says lower body, but I'm assuming maybe the legs to like take him down. Um, she handed Johnny a knife and he stabbed him like multiple times, killing him. Wow. Following the murders, Johnny loaded both of the bodies into the back of Gloria's Jeep and they drove to a vacant lot in Long Beach, which SoCal is so sprawling. I actually don't even know how far away those two things are, <laughs> but I don't think they're particularly far. Um, where Johnny began to d- uh, dig a grave, but it wasn't big enough for both bodies, which I'm like, keep oh digging God. then. <laughs> like, keep digging. That's, that's how you hole. make it that's... bigger. <laughs> you make a hole bigger by, like, digging. Jesus. <laughs> um, so they just buried the stepfather and drove back to the trailer with the mother's dead body still in the back of the Jeep. Yeah. Over the next several days, several days have passed. Uh, the both of them stripped 
the stepfather's truck for parts and sold off all of Gloria's jewelry. Uh, with all that money, they bought beer, soda, chips, and decorations for a Halloween party that they were planning to throw for their friends. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they drove to a, a Halloween supply store. And while they were buying um, glow sticks and flashing skull lights, uh, Gloria's corpse was still in there, just rotting in the back of the car. Oh my god. Just That's horrific. Full, like, psychopaths. And then they would later bury her in a shallow grave in a vacant lot in the city of Norwalk, California. I feel like if you're gonna kill someone, like, you've gotta be prepared to, like, finish it. Honestly, like, I can't even imagine taking several days break I'm like, from burying one body before burying the other. <sighs> Insane. Finally, Gloria's body was spotted by a jogger, and it was in such an advanced stage of decomposition that the authorities were initially unable to identify her. Mm. It was really bad. After the police realized that both of them um, were missing, they obviously went to the daughter and was like, have you seen your parents? Right. When the authorities arrived, it looked like someone had come in and ransacked the home for valuables and left. Wow. So they also had two things going on. They were like, is this, you know, somebody who came in and murdered these people? Or, you know, does the daughter have something to do with it? So they immediately started talking to Cynthia and she quickly told them what happened. She just laid it all out. Johnny tried to start lying, but they told him that Cynthia had already told them what had happened. Um, And so he said, in quotes, oh, damn, and then laid out every single detail. (laughs) He tried to also take the blame for the murders, but he couldn't help but implicate Cynthia in his retelling of the story. Like he was trying to be like, I did it all. But like, clearly she was like a huge part of like the planning and all of that. And then like (laughs) writing notes. So he quickly gave up on that. Just the stupidest people alive. Yep. And you know, easy peasy. They were charged as adults and arrested on two counts of murder with special circumstances. Uh, Because of their age, however, prosecutors decided not to seek the death penalty. Mm -hmm. Trials go on for about a year and a half, I think. Oh, no, sorry. Just half a year. Um, And the two were sentenced to life in prison. And um, Johnny's sentence carried no possibility of parole, but Cynthia's would be eligible for parole in 51 years. It's a long time. A long time. Um, And that, yeah, is the story of... Two teenagers killing her parents. Wow. Insane. Yep. <laughs> um, also, if you could hear that, that was Jackson moving around, getting yes. resettled to go getting... back into his nap, I assume. Yes. Nappy boy. So yes. right up on the mic. He's like, I'm part of this podcast now. <laughs> He's like, actually, I have some thoughts about Cynthia. Would you like to share them? Because, I, you know, it's a crazy case. It is. Yeah. He's like, they're stupid. I can't even imagine, like, trying to take the blame for murders than being like, wait, I can't tell the story without implicating her. So stupid. So, yeah. Horrific and sad, as all of these stories have been. <laughs> Honestly. No murders are fun. None. Yeah. Um, so... Especially not these. Um, so this is the last story. And this was the story, the whole reason that I wanted to do, you know, that we arrived at the Halloween crimes thing. Yeah. Um... So this case has been like a main cause for the idea, uh, for the main like myth of people tampering with Halloween candy. Oh, right. Um, but I don't think a lot of people know about it. It is an older case, um, but it is also a Texas case. And I have read almost every case for 
people executed in Texas because I think it's really interesting. Right. Um, so I have been familiar with this for a long time, but I've never heard anyone else talk about it. So before this case, there was one, um, there was a few non-deadly incidents of people uh, messing with candy. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't really find most of them. There was one where a dentist in 1959, apparently in protest against the practice of Halloween, laced candies with laxatives and then gave them out to trick-or-treaters, uh, causing 30 kids to get sick. Nobody died. Oh, um, God. He was charged, thankfully. <laughs> yeah. God, I'm like, what a weird hill to die on. Um, This case of candy tampering, though, really solidified this myth and, like, the collective consciousness. Like, it went from, like, oh, it could happen to, like, this is, like, a guaranteed, like, people are going to poison your kid's candy. Wild. Um, So this this story takes place in Deer Park, Texas, which is essentially a suburb of Houston. Oh. Um, It's on Halloween night in 1974. So Ronald Clark O'Brien was escorting his two kids, eight-year-old Timothy and five-year-old Elizabeth, around the neighborhood for trick-or-treating, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, Timothy was dressed as a uh, in a Planet of the Apes costume, and Elizabeth <laughs> was dressed as a princess. Cute. I would share. Um, the family was trick-or-treating with their neighbor, Jim Bates, and one of his children, his son. Um so during the night, they happened upon a house that didn't have any lights on, which if you're not aware, that's like pretty common on Halloween nights if they like aren't giving out candy, you know. Yeah, they don't have the lights on. They're not home, whatever. Yeah. Um, but the kids were not deterred and still went up and knocked on the door and waited several minutes before finally giving up and moving on. Ronald, for some reason, stayed behind and then caught up shortly with them, the entire group, claiming that the people at the house gave him five 21-inch pixie sticks. Um, Those are long pixie sticks. Yeah, they're like the mega-sized ones. Um, He gave one to Timothy, one to Elizabeth, one to Bates' son, and then another one to Bates to give to his kid who didn't come along with them. And then um, the last pixie stick ended up in the hands of a neighborhood child, a 10-year-old that Ronald knew from church. Uh, it's not clear whether or not Ronald gave it out later when he was trick or treating or if they happened upon the child, but somehow he ended up with this candy. Right. Um, so the family got home and Ronald told Elizabeth and Timothy that they could each have one piece of candy to eat before bed, which lame, <laughs> so lame. So lame. <laughs> you should get to eat as much candy as you want. You should be able to feel so sick mm-hmm. going to bed on Halloween night. Yeah. Just sick to your stomach. Like and not American in a parents. poisoned way, but in a, you yeah. just ate so much sugar and you had like a blast. Exactly. Um, but he only obviously let them eat one. Um, no one knows what Elizabeth picked, but Timothy picked the pixie stick. Obviously, it's a huge fucking thing. Yeah. I would have picked, pixie sticks were my favorite as a kid. So I would have been dead, dead, dead ski. Uh, Yeah. That giant pixie stick, I'd be like, fuck yeah, you're gonna give me one piece? I'm taking that one. I'm taking that one. Um, this just like, it hurts. Mm -hmm. Thinking of this like, child. However, the powder inside the tube was, like, clumped together. Yeah. So not typically how, you know, a pixie stick would be. Yeah. Uh, So Ronald rolled it in between his hands and then poured it into Timothy's mouth. Timothy complained that the powder tasted weirdly bitter. Yeah. Um, Moments later, he said his stomach hurt and then ran to the bathroom and began vomiting uncontrollably. He then began convulsing on the floor 
and his parents called 911. Uh, Ronald's wife is not really a part of this story, but she was present, not for trick-or-treating, but that night. Right. So Ronald claimed that he held his son while he was vomiting, and then the boy went limp in his arms. Uh, Timothy died en route to the hospital less than an hour after he had ingested this candy. God. An autopsy determined that he died after ingesting enough potassium cyanide to kill two full-grown adults, um, which is insane. Jesus. Um, so this caused a huge panic in Deer Park, like right away. Of course. Um, there were hundreds of bags of candy submitted to the police that night. Yeah. So news was spreading quickly. The cops did determine that the only tampered candy in the entire hall were the five pixie sticks, which they released to, you know, you know to the public. Right. Um, the parents of the 10 year old who Ronald gave the last pixie stick to were hysterical, obviously having heard the news and were unable to find the pixie stick among their son's candy. Um, they rushed upstairs to find their son asleep, clutching the poisoned candy in his hand. And the only thing that saved him was that the staple used to reseal the candy after tampering was too strong and he could not pry it open. God. So he survived, but I can't even imagine being that parent and like frantically searching yeah. for this and thing seeing them hold for it. a murder weapon. You're like, oh my God. Oh my God. So Ronald told police that he couldn't remember the location of the house that had given him this poisoned candy. Um, he also said that he didn't see the person that gave him the candy. He said that a man's hairy arm poked through a crack in the front door and gave them to him. Um... Jim Bates, the man who was trick-or-treating with them, told the police that they had only taken the children to two streets that night mm-hmm. because it had started raining. And police also discovered that none of the houses that had they had canvassed um, had given out pixie sticks on Halloween. Right. Um, the police made Ronald walk the neighborhood three separate times, like with the police. Of course. Um, and eventually he led them to the darkened house where he said he'd gotten the pixie sticks. Mm-hmm. Um, the man who lived there... Uh, he lived there with like his wife and his kid had a rock solid alibi uh, because he was an air traffic controller at the airport nearby and yeah. was working and did not get home until 11 p.m. So, so literally his like voice and everything like on record. Yeah. yeah like like the, just... the solidest like alibi yeah. um, that you could possibly have. <laughs> right. Um, so obviously this was, a, you know, the police were on to Ronald pretty quickly. Of course. Um, they began digging into his background and discovered that he was over $100,000 in debt so keep in mind, this is 1974, and that would be over half a million dollars in today's money. Of course. Um, he had held 21 different jobs over the preceding 10 years and was very close to losing his current job because he was suspected of theft. So highly unstable. Yikes. He had also recently taken out multiple life insurance policies on each of his children, but not himself or his wife. The policies totaled around $60,000. Jesus. Ronald's wife told police that she had no idea there were policies on her kids' lives. Um, Ronald also contacted this insurance company about collecting Timothy's insurance policies the next morning after he died. Jesus Christ. Even more damning than all of this, like, very damning, obviously circumstantial, but damning evidence, uh, was that they discovered he had visited a chemical supply shop in Houston shortly before Halloween uh, to inquire about buying cyanide. Um, but left without buying anything after learning that the smallest unit available was five pounds. Oh my 
how much fucking cyanide do you need to kill a child? Jesus. Um, it's not known how he got the cyanide. They never did find out. Mm-hmm. Um, so they arrested him on November 5th, which is also the same day that they arrested the guy from my last story. Wow, yeah. <laughs> uh, so pretty quick. Um, and he was charged with one count of capital murder, which in Texas is death penalty, and four counts of attempted murder for the children who hadn't eaten the pixie sticks, but he'd given it to them. Right. Um, so at the trial, multiple witnesses testified that in the months before the murder, he'd been unusually interested in the subject of cyanide, asking friends and various professionals about how much of the compound it would take to kill a person and where to buy it. (sighs) (laughs) Fucking idiot. Um... He'd also spoken with several relatives about how he was going to use the insurance money to take a long vacation, apparently, on the day of Timothy's funeral. Um, He maintained his innocence throughout the trial. Who knows why? Um, His defense mainly used the urban legend of the mad candy poisoner, of the uh, deprived individual who laces candy with poison or hides sharp objects in it purely for the purpose of harming random children. Um... They lived, you know, these stories are urban legend for the most part. But um, after he used this claim, the press began calling him the candy man. Um, The jury took only 46 minutes to find him guilty on all counts. Amazing. Um, And only an additional 71 minutes during the sentencing phase to sentence him to death. Perfect. Um, so this is Texas. So it is not just a sit on death row for your life. Uh, yeah. Texas loves to execute people. They love it. They are the only state that sells execution that doesn't do last meals. So like, oh, it's right. really common for them to be like, oh, you can choose whatever you want to eat for your last meal. Texas doesn't even do that anymore. They're just like, fuck you. Yeah. And they just execute people. Amazing. They have executed so many people in the last hundred years alone. It's insane. Yeah. Um. So this is pretty serious in yeah. Texas, not like California. Yeah. Um, again, I don't believe in the death no, penalty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think it's like kind of funny how like insane Texas is. Yeah. Um, shortly after he was convicted, I think only a couple days later, his wife filed for divorce and then later remarried and her new husband actually adopted Elizabeth. So Aww. they got to move on at least. Yeah. Um, obviously she was not a part of this. Like she didn't know right. at all. Which is another kind of horrifying. Yeah. I can't imagine how you would trust someone ever again. Yeah. Um, so he has spent the last years of his life in the Huntsville prison. This is the prison that, you know, they keep death row on for men, not for women. Right. It's really interesting. Um, I actually worked for a woman who grew up in Huntsville and she would talk about how she would go out and play and watch the chain gangs work on the rail <laughs> railroads from Huntsville. <laughs> oh my god! I was like, that is insane. Your parents should not let you do that. <laughs> no, what the hell? Um, Why were you not supervised? Yeah. So this is a, like it's a massive prison. Yeah. Um. So he was. This is very funny to me. He was despised by all of his fellow death row inmates, of course, um, because he murdered a child. And the inmates petitioned to hold an organized demonstration on his execution date to show him how much they hated him. Good. (laughs) I think it's very hilarious. Or did you know if they were able to do it? I couldn't find if they were able to or not. Um, But it was pretty funny that I was. They were just like, "Fuck this guy," and also, you should let us come so that we can tell him one more time. Yeah. 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 Um, his first execution date was set for August 8th, 1980, uh, but it would be rescheduled four times due to various legal actions. This is super common because you can't be executed without like exhausting all of your appeals. Right. 
Um, his last appeal was for a stay of execution on the basis that the legal lethal injection was cruel and unusual punishment. Mm -hmm. Um, but this appeal was denied March 28th of 1984. And on March 31st, O'Brien was executed by lethal injection shortly after midnight. So this is pretty fast turnaround. 10 years. Yeah. From the time he murdered his son to the time he was executed. Pretty quick. That is not a long time to spend on death row. No. Um, his last statement consisted mostly of him maintaining his innocence and saying that he thought that the death penalty was wrong. Which, okay. I mean, like, you don't get to say that. Right. I'm like, generally, yes, but yeah. um, just be quiet. Yeah, I'm like, the death penalty is horrifying for, you know, the people who are innocent that are on death row. Like, right. Completely harrowing, and it's like, that's, like, ultimately why I don't believe in the death penalty, but I'm like, you, as a someone who has very clearly murdered his own child for the money, yeah, don't get to say shit. So much so, you, you suck so bad that the rest of the people on death row... Yeah. Which, to get death row in Texas, you have to have, like, committed murder yeah. alongside another violent crime yeah. or have killed someone under the age of 13. Exactly. So it's it's a rough crowd. Yeah, it's, like, not not good people. And, and they, they hated you. you. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's like, all right, whatever. Yeah. Um, his execution drew a strange mix of protesters. Uh, there were anti-death penalty activists that opposed the execution, you know, like I said, I also oppose the death penalty, but maybe you pick your battles. Yeah. Um, but they were heavily overwhelmed by people there celebrating O'Brien's demise, um, who this group yelled trick or treat at the anti-death penalty protesters and threw, um, just showered them with candy. I mean... <laughs> I get it. I'm like, <laughs> they were kind of having fun. Yeah, I'm like, on an emotional level, like, I completely appeal, you know, to the people who believe in the death penalty. I understand that it's a really, really hard, you know, subject. Yeah, I don't think it's something that's, like, hard and fast and easy to, like, decide. Yeah. I think it's... It's know. very much on, like, a, a logical, you know, kind of, like, general principle level that I'm even, you know anti-death penalty it's like it's really hard to get past the emotional component and i completely understand it right and i can it's especially a when a child dies especially yeah and especially with things like with cases where it's clear the person has done it you know it's yeah. like what do you do with someone who has committed such heinous crimes and it's like you know i under i understand it's it's just the death penalty is just so hard yeah um in those kind of cases you right because you feel like you're not getting the justice that you know these victims deserve right and it's you know it can be very like just difficult to hear about these cases and know that that person is still like breathing yes you know still like the alive. guy from our last case mm -hmm. um I can understand. I'm yeah. like my only reason really is that I just don't believe the state deserves to kill anyone yeah it's not about if they deserve to die. Yeah. Um, and because it's a, a lot you know, of them, if I was making the call, you know, they do. Exactly. And it's it's about the procedures that let too many innocent people fall through the cracks. Right. Like, and the fact that, like, more people of color are executed. Although in Texas, um, it's an equal number oh. for white men and black men. But um, you are more likely to get the death penalty if the person you killed is white. That so makes that's sense. that's where the racism hits. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yes, um, it's the institutions that 
cause these issues. Right. Um, um, so a lot of articles followed this, obviously, and it was widely believed that O'Brien's execution was like a catharsis for Texas. Yeah. And a lot of people celebrated because their Halloween boogeyman was like finally dead. Yeah, I get it. Um, yeah. I do too. I can't, I'm like, especially people with kids. And then just, I am sick with it. Um, yeah. But I just think this case is really interesting because obviously this, you know, persisted and people thought about this for a long time. They were like, oh, this boogeyman is real. Right. When in truth, it was a man who wanted money and was willing to kill his own children to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it persists even further that like, you know, um, even past the point of people thinking it's real, it's still things that are brought up all the time. I remember going trick-or-treating and my dad being like, as a joke, taking some of my candy, being like, I'm just checking to make sure it's not poison. Right. It was a comment. Yeah, that was, it was like, like so Everybody common. knew that story. Yeah. You know? like, my nobody... dad is from Ireland. Like, right. how did he hear that story? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> And it's like, and nobody knows who this man is. Right. Like, this story in... Texas history, even most people I know don't know it. Right. Like I said, the only reason I do is because I like to read death penalty cases for right. fun. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a crazy person. Um, but most people in Texas don't even talk about it anymore. It came right. and went very quickly and it was resolved. Mm-hmm. But, you know, obviously this carried on for a long time. Right. Um, but it was just a greedy monster. Just... Who was willing to let his son die in a horrific way. Literally poured the poison into his son's mouth. Yeah. And was willing to let four other kids die. I Crazy story. Yeah. Including Um, his other kid for the money as well. He only got half of what he wanted. Or he didn't actually get it. Right. Oh, God. Also, it's a really be suspicious for anyone to pull out life insurance policies on minors. Yeah, that's super weird. I might be wrong, but I thought life insurance like life insurance <laughs> um life insurance policies were for people like if you were making money for your family, like yes. if you were the primary support and you died, the life insurance would, you know, ensure that your family had money still coming in after your death. Exactly. Um, so I just find it really weird I that you were even allowed to, because it's like, in what world is your child providing financial support that you need to make money off of their yes. death? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've talked about this actually with my mom, because after my brother died, my parents were obviously thinking a lot about death and stuff, and were worried if anything happened to either of them, like making sure that like my sister and I were cared for that they had life insurance policies on themselves as like breadwinners of the family. Like they were Mm -hmm. both making money. They both had jobs. And my mom was, and I were talking about it not too long ago too. And because they had updated it, you know, as you do in increments, it's like pretty normal to like, you know, up the policies as you go along. Um, And she was, she told me, I was, I think the last time I updated, they updated it, I was like 21 or 22 or something. And she was like, you know, you have been making money at this point, but she was like, I am never, I'm not going to take one out on you. Like that's your own choice if you want to do that on Mm -hmm. your own. But she was just letting me know. She was like, you don't have one on you just if you're wondering and asking. But she's like, I'm not doing that. You're my child. Like, I don't care if you're making money. Like, that's right, because that something's... money would never go to her anyway. Exactly. She's like, oh, that's not something that I'm ever considering at all for right. either of you. You know, my sister now has a job, you know, and all that stuff. But, you know, I had been working for like five plus years. Just, she's like, that's not something that I would ever do. Like, right. You can do that on your own completely fine. Like, of it's course. like you do it for yourself to yes. care for, for like dependents. Exactly. She was like, so you, like know... you would do it as an adult for an older adult, like a, your parent, if yes. they were like 
older. Right, if I was taking work. care of them and right. I was working, you know, I would take one for myself for them. Or, you know, if the possibility I had kids, like that kind of situation. Like, not a parent taking it for their well, like, able-bodied, like, kid who's, yeah. like, you know, making money. Like, doesn't make any sense. Let alone a child that's not making money. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that's so fucking weird. I'm like, like it's weird to me that that's even allowed. Yeah, how and, were they even allowed to do that? Like, and to pull, and to put so many. That's so much money. I'm like, Especially in 1970. Yeah. That's so much money. I'm like, I, I really don't, I'm like, do I just not understand life insurance policies? I feel like I yeah. understand them okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm obviously not going to disclose the, you know, life insurance policies that my parents have, like, the amount or anything, but it's you know that's a lot of fucking money right comparatively i'm like i don't know that's just it's crazy yeah um so anyways that is the end of our second series we're gonna be starting a new one next week our third Um, series that i have to desperately write so quickly um i promise i promise i'm gonna do good work it's not gonna be rushed i promise i mean it's rushed but i I promise it's still gonna be good it'll be good um so we are gonna record a (laughs) standard ending but i just wanted to plug this now so we're opening a thing on our patreon where if you want to uh decide what topics we cover and make suggestions we are gonna hold i think maybe monthly votes uh for upcoming topics yeah. Um, so, so you can let us know. You can vote on existing topics that we will throw out there. You can throw out your own topics mm-hmm. in comments and stuff. Um, yeah. So you can vote for uh, $1 a month. It is literally on our lowest tier. Yeah. Um, so if that's something you want to do and help us uh, so that we can keep making this podcast and not be horribly stressed about money all the time, yeah. check that out. It'd be um, super helpful. <laughs> yeah. We'd love it. Um, so we'll see you guys, uh, Monday for armchair bimbos. Yes. The fun, the fun stuff. We'll <laughs> get fun, back to the not, fun stuff. I think it's going to be a fun week cause this yeah. was fucking rough. We've got some crazy ass news. Yeah. Getting away from these epic bummers. Yeah. Yeah. All right guys. Bye. Bye. The podcast rejects is a gamer frauds network production. Find us on Instagram at the podcast rejects for early access to all gamer frauds network content and a ton of exclusive perks, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash gamerfrauds.